Happy Sabbath, everyone. I just uh, have this strong sense that, um, you know, we just got here just a few minutes ago, but I always have this strong sense sometimes when this has been a difficult week for, for more than a few of you. And um, offer my condolences um, for what that's worth. I, um, today, we're going to be continuing a thought. Thank you. We're going to be continuing a thought that we started with last week. And it's this idea of believing in God and having a whole-souled religion. A whole-souled religion. And the reason I say these things is because it's very easy to have aspects of a real faith. To believe in things based on conditions. And so I used the illustration last time that if you ask a child who their hero is while they're in Sabbath school, they will say Jesus. If you ask them when they're on the playground, they will say Spider-Man. <laughs> the context changes the response. And it is humorous. And then I wonder sometimes if we're that much different. Given the right change in circumstance, given the right change in context, how far does our faith go? And I believe that the only kind of faith that will do, both in these last days and really any day, is a faith that reaches the whole soul. Does that make sense to everyone? So I know last time we talked about the wiring of the brain and all that stuff. It was really interesting, and I'm sorry if you missed that because I'm not going to go through all that again, uh, just because uh, for the sake of time, I don't think we'd ever make it to anywhere else. But that is the reason behind the picture there. Just suffice it to say that if you look at that right there, that computer is the, one, of the most, one of the largest computers in the world. It's a supercomputer, and it has something like 67 miles worth of wiring that is intricately done because if any of those wirings are crossed or any of those wires break, the computer ceases to be able to function at the level that it does. And this picture here is a picture of your brain where the wiring does not extend some 67 miles, but somewhere in the millions, all contained in your head. And just so you can understand why the little cells in your brain, you know, you've seen a ruler before and you see how there's that millimeter mark. So if you cut that about 100,000 times into 100,000 pieces, then you have about the size of the neurons in your brain. And then some of them have tails that extend from one side of your head all the way to the other. So you can just imagine the uh, proportions that we're talking about here. You're beautifully and wonderfully made. And all those things seem to make up the sum of who you are as a person. Okay, that's my wiring summary. And the rest of it, we're just going to get straight over to where we are today. So if you could read that, good for you. And if not, then you're okay. So happy Sabbath again, everyone. Thank you. Before we, we get started today, I would like to just have um, just one more word of prayer with you to make sure that the words that are spoken today are not mine, but indeed they come from the Lord. So if you would not mind uh, just bowing your heads with me just one more time, then we will, we will pray one last time before we get started. Our gracious and kind Father, we thank you for the blessing of life. We thank you, Lord, that every day that we have and every moment that we have is a gift. And Lord, I know that sometimes before we can appreciate what we have, sometimes we have to lose it. And I suspect, Lord, that before we see our Redeemer, that all of us, just as Christ was, will be brought about as low as we can take, so that when we look up, we can appreciate our redemption that draws nigh. And I pray today that as we listen to your words, that indeed we would hear your voice and that your spirit would inspire every word that is spoken today. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. So... I hope that as we continue through this today, I hope you'll continue to pray for me for multiple reasons. One is that my thoughts will stay straight, and two, that my voice will stay audible. Can you pray those prayers for me today? Would that, can you do that? Thank you. I would, I would greatly appreciate that. Now, uh, I just let you know ahead of time, there will be some things uh, that I will be talking about that aren't up there, and I do apologize about that, but I think if you take good notes, I'll try to let you know where all the references come from for those who like to follow in that fashion. Okay? Is that fair to everyone? Okay. All right. So, what we looked at first was how it is that Satan deceived, uh, how Satan deceived Eve. And we looked at the three levels on which uh, human consciousness, or at least your, your way of existing in this world, happens. It happens, and this is really crude, so forgive me, on the level of your thoughts, then on the level of your emotions, and then on the level of your instincts or your nature. Emotions and instincts uh, go really close together. If there's one emotion above any other that is connected to your most basic instincts, it's actually fear. 
And that's really powerful because you, if you know 1 John chapter 4, it talks about what perfect love is able to do. Brothers and sisters, what does it do? Perfect love does what? Drives away Yes, and I want you to recognize that fear is your most basic, instinctive emotion. And when the Bible says that love casts out fear, what that means is that love should be able to overcome your what then? Your most basic instincts in nature. Think about that one. I believe conversion was always intended to be thorough, that love was never intended to be a word that you use to punctuate a sentence or to try to throw in an I'm sorry. It's like, well, I want to tell you something, but just know that I love you. It's kind of like an apology. That's not what God originally intended for love to be. Love was something that was intended to convert, was something that was intended to provide a sense of security. It was something that was to take the place of our own instincts to protect ourselves and to trust in something bigger than ourselves. Okay, so when Satan comes into the garden, he's not unaware of this. And you'll notice that when he deceives Eve, he goes down on all three of these levels. So the first thing he says to Eve is, well, first he asks her a question. It says, hath God said that thou shalt not eat the fruit of the tree of the garden? If you'd like to go there, this is all in Genesis chapter 3. But you all have gone to Genesis so many times that you probably have it memorized by now, don't you? And so when he comes to, when he comes to Eve, he tempts her with this thing, and he, and he tells her, and he speaks to her with words. Now, today when I was teaching at the Sabbath school with some of the young people, we talked about language. Language is an amazing thing. So I'm going to say something, and then I want you to tell me what color you see. Now, you might see an object, but I want you to tell me what color you see. Apple. Red. Now, how did that happen? I didn't say anything about red. No. Yes, correct. There's an association with it. Now, I want you to notice that there's a second power in words. When I say a word, you see an image. Let me say this a little bit differently. The words that you speak can create an image in the mind. Let me say that a little bit differently. Your words create an image. And not just any image. I believe the words that you speak create an image of who you are. Jesus had spoken these words when he had said, by thy words you shall be justified, and by your words shalt thou be condemned. Your words are powerful. Don't ever think that you can just get away with saying something and then just say, well, that's not what I meant and all this. And, I, and it's okay if we sometimes make mistakes. But brothers and sisters, we have to own our words. That's just a little side sermon. You must own your words. They do have a power. There's no such thing as sticks and stones. That is garbage. You can do more damage with your words than you can with sticks and stones. Believe me. I watch it all the time. Okay. So, Satan comes along, deceives Eve, tells her something. The words go into her thoughts. Those thoughts go into her feelings, and those feelings go into her instincts. And we can see exactly how that played out. He speaks these words to her. She's enticed by these words, and these words begin to change her thoughts. She begins to think, oh, maybe the fruit is not that bad. Now, I want you just to recognize how crazy this is, because nothing in the garden is poisonous except this tree. And somehow Satan has convinced Eve to eat poison. I mean, this is... This is Ludicrous. Like, has anybody ever tasted strychnine before? Anybody interested? No. Now, how come you won't have your own personal experience with strychnine? <laughs> Why are you taking my word for it? I believe it's because the risk is too high. And so I want you to recognize just the extent to which deception is really going on here in the garden. You have the only thing that God said was bad, and, and somehow they get into it. So first it takes hold of her thoughts. Then it takes hold of her emotions because she saw that it can be something to make one wise. There was that sense of excitement, that thrill. And by the way, you need emotions. So this whole idea of suppressing emotions, you know that that's garbage. Let me just help you out here really quickly. This idea of just stuffing your emotions is not actually really effective. They did experiments on people and they looked at two different people. They had one group of people who stuffed their emotions and another group of people who tried to step back and evaluate the situation a little bit differently so they can look at the purpose of their emotions. The people who stuffed their emotions had a far more intense reaction to the experiment than people who just simply evaluated the emotions and did something to process them. Can I say that in English? When you stuff your feelings, you make it worse. When you think your feelings through, then you can actually handle them. Is that, that more clear to everybody else? So here it is that Eve is, is enticed in the level of her feelings. Then her feelings come and take hold of her nature. Now, where do I get with saying that? Well, did you know one of, you know one of your basic instincts are the biology to eat, right? Nobody teaches a baby to be hungry. 
You don't say, okay, now you need to put this in your mouth. Like children are naturally hungry and they will cry and cry until they get the food that they want. No one teaches them to be hungry. But what's happened here with Eve is now instead of being hungry for the fruit that comes from the tree of life, now what is she hungry for? Yes, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or to say it differently, somehow Satan has taken her instincts to eat food and somehow convinced her to eat poison. That's pretty powerful. But notice where it started. It starts with the thoughts. It goes down to the feelings and gets into the nature. And so I tried to summarize it with that statement up there that Satan deceived Eve on the level of thought. First, through the use of words, and those words, uh, and those thoughts, excuse me, changed her feelings. And those feelings led her to partake of the fruit that changed her heart. Or to summarize all that, the fruit of the tree went to the root of her being. Now that'll make a lot of sense when we get to the very end of this. So, the verse that we used last time is found in Psalm chapter 1. So why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. It'll help you stay awake. It'll help your thoughts stay active and alert. Is everybody still there? Yes, you're all still there. Excellent. So let's start with our thoughts. And I know we went there before, so this is going to be just, again, by way of quick quick summary so that we can move straight through this, because I know that not everybody heard this first time. So when you get to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, go ahead and say amen. 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 And so it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is where, everyone? In the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate. Now what's another word for meditate? Think, contemplate, yes. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a what? A tree planted by the rivers of waters, who bringeth forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf also shall not, what, everyone? Whither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now he is planted by those rivers of living water, and I think a, a good study of scripture will show you that that water comes from God. It's the water of life. But what we saw here is that there's only one way to have the word of God in your thoughts, and it can't just be passive. It can't just be every once in a while that we think about the word of God. What does it say that he does with this word of God or the law of God? It says he meditates on it how often? day and night. To say that differently, it means all the time. If the things that we think about are ever to have any impact on us on a deeper level, they have to have a meditation all the time. Now, the other thing that's really neat about this is that if you look at this whole idea of, of man being compared to a tree, you'll find something very interesting. So you all see the palm of my hand here. You can use your own palm. So can you take your palm of your hand and then fold your thumb over like this, something like that? Okay. And then take your four fingers and kind of cuff them around your thumb. That is what your brain looks like. And I'm going to show you how all this stuff works. There's a man named Daniel Siegel. He was a neurobiologist, and he was talking about this thing. So this, these four fingers up here are responsible for your higher-level thinking. This is called your cortex. This part right here at your thumb is responsible for a lot of your emotions. So this would be kind of like, you know, where, where um, not just emotions of fear and anger, but also some of the other more pleasurable emotions like happiness, joy, and everything else are right here. Now, if you take that thumb away, you'll see that there's two branches right here, and those two branches make up the brainstem. This is where your instincts and basic functions go. And by the way, fear is deeply experienced in this part of the brain. So what they found is that uh, given different levels of experience, these parts of the brain will come off and on. So people who have stage fright, anybody here have stage fright sometimes? So what happens when you have stage fright is, you know, your, the higher part of your brain cuts off, and then what you're left with is all these emotions. And so instead of being acutely aware of all your lines, you're acutely aware of everybody looking at you, and you're trying to think about whether or not you should run, whether or not you should wet your pants, or something else of that nature, because your emotions are flying all over the place. And for these things to all be connected, I want to suggest to you that, uh, that this is a good picture of the tree. Because the tree has three main parts. You have the top part of the tree with the branches, leaves, and fruit. You have the stalk of the tree, which makes up uh, you know, the emotions and all sort of stuff. You have the stalk of the tree, and then you have the roots of the tree, which make up the rest of the basic instincts. By the way, your brain stem connects to your entire central nervous system. And you know what it looks like when you see all the, all the, all the nerves go out into the body? It looks like roots. You know. And we already discovered that the brain is full of branches, if you will. And, well, does that make sense to everybody? So you got the tree analogy. If you missed everything else, you're like a tree. Does that, does that make sense? Everybody got that one? Yes. So right now, with this one, we're looking at the level of leaves, branches, and fruit. And next, we're going to be looking at the emotional level, which we kind of talked about last time. But uh, today, we'll get a little more into it. OK, so is, have I lost anybody? I'm trying to be as thorough as I can. Anybody lost? No? OK, no blank faces. All right, that's good. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the influence let me see. I think I might have skipped my slide there. Okay. 
up here we have a quote, and this quote is found from, uh, from Christ Objects Lessons, I believe it is, and it says, uh, it talks about the influence of the truth on the conscience and on the heart. So the statement here is, the psalmist says, the entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. Now listen to this, it says, when truth is working only upon the conscience, it creates much uneasiness. But when truth is invited into where, brothers and sisters? The heart, the whole being, is brought into captivity of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't buy the quote, there's a, there's a scripture right there. If you'd like to look it up, you may. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, or you might say thoughts, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity some of the thoughts. Does anybody know what it actually says? It says, every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now that sounds like a tall order, because when you think about the sum of your thoughts, are all your thoughts subject to Christ? You don't have to answer me that directly. But here it is that the promise is that every thought should be in subjection to the obedience of Christ. But you know how that happens? Well, in Psalm chapter 1, how often are you meditating in the law of God? Day and night. That would be incessantly, wouldn't it? That would be nonstop. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Okay. I think we've drilled that point in. All right. I'm going to skip, and maybe we can come back to those quotes at another time. So let's look at the level of emotions. The level of emotions. Emotions are so incredibly important. And what did we say happens when you suppress emotions that make things better, brothers and sisters? No, no, no. It makes things worse. It actually makes you probably more sensitive to your emotional experiences. Uh, so stuffing it, probably not the best idea. That doesn't mean you just let it all out. It means evaluate it differently. All right, so on the level of emotions, we're looking at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And when you get there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Now, we talked a little bit about Mark chapter 5 last time, but I don't think I did a good job of that. And hopefully uh, the second go around is not, is not cumbersome to anyone that heard me the first time. So Mark chapter 5. Is everybody there? Amen. amen. All right, Mark chapter 5. And it says... And they came over unto the other side of the sea, unto the country of the Gadarenes. And when they come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling amongst where? The tombs. Now, it says this twice. Now, what is the significance of this man dwelling in the tombs? Well, what does that really mean? How many people do you have to talk to? Zero. Zero. If you're not aware of this, I'll let you know, and you can go do a Bible study about this, but the dead do not talk to you. And even if you believe that the dead were in heaven or in hell, then you at least probably believe that corpses don't talk to you. That's what makes them corpses. And if they are talking, they're probably not dead. Does that make sense to everyone? And so he has his dwelling amongst the tombs. So in what condition is he? He is alone. He is completely alone. Now, um, this upcoming Sabbath, uh, or not upcoming Sabbath, I'm sorry, uh, tomorrow we're going to be talking a little bit about depression in, uh, in, in Reno out there, and we're going to look a little bit at the whole thing of depression, and uh, I found that most people are really ashamed of that topic of depression, which is really unfortunate because, first of all, it afflicts so many people, I mean, uh, and it's only growing. Uh, we just were on the phone last night praying about this event, and we just heard about an 11-year-old child that killed himself. And people don't know this because they think that uh, when you think about depression as just being like, uh, you know, somebody's got the blues, they need to get over it. If you think that's what depression is, and it's really easy to miss it when someone is depressed because the people are doing all the stuff they're probably being suggested. You know, just go through life, go through the motions because this kid was doing well in school, had a lot of people that liked him. No one had a clue that he was depressed, and boom, he's died. And the problem is people don't really dig enough when they talk to each other. Too many times we're content to get the answers we want from people instead of the answers that are real. When we ask people how they're doing, 99% of the time we want to hear them say they're fine. If they say anything more than this, we say a couple of awkward comments about maybe the football game, the weather, and then we walk away because we have no idea what we're doing. And brothers and sisters, I don't say that as a condemnation. I think most of us are afraid to really connect with people. We're scared to death. You know, if somebody says, I'm sad and I want to kill myself, what do you do with that? You don't want to be the person who's responsible for that. And so you walk away from it. It makes a lot of sense. But I want to suggest that there's, an, there's a sentiment that largely keeps us from being able to stay engaged with people. And I want to tell you that that sentiment is the same one that was lost in the garden, and that is love. Because in that moment, fear overrides love. Completely does. And I think that has so much to do with this whole idea of having a whole-souled religion of love that reaches all the way down to the bottom. 
So this man is alone, but you know, y'all can be sitting out there and be alone. Yes. Because loneliness is not a matter of having a body present, which he had plenty of bodies present, by the way. It's about having somebody present. It's about having someone who wants to actually connect with you. One of the things they found was that, that when they, um, when they you know, did studies on rats, they're just incredibly cruel to rats. But nevertheless, we can use the information for our advantage because their brains are structured similar to ours that when rats had close relationships with a spouse or a partner, I guess in their case, um, and they had children, they looked at the parts of the brain that responded when they were separated. And I think I put it in here just so you can see it for yourself. Okay, so I'll read this, but then I'll explain it in English. So it says, a neural pathway connected to the amygdala. The amygdala is that part of the brain that does the fight or flight business. That was your thumb there. Y'all remember that? Yes. All right, so the amygdala uh, that switches on automatically when a loved one is suddenly perceived as unavailable. This man, Panskep, uh, has shown us that separation plunges into what he calls a primal panic. Now, what's interesting about this is if you look at the actions of this man, which you're still there in Mark chapter 5. Let's take a look at some of his actions. Can you tell me if this sounds like normal human behavior? If this sounds rather primal and animalistic, you tell me. All right, so you're there? Yes, Mark chapter 5. All right, verse 3. Who had his dwelling amongst the tombs, which we read, and no man can bind him, no, not with chains. So if you pause for a second there, why were men trying to bind him with chains? Yeah, the guy was out of control. Yeah, the guy was totally wild and out of control. Yes, yes. He was a threat. It probably wasn't because they wanted to sit and have dinner with him, right? <laughs> Which is sad. It says, because that he had, been of, he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and chains had been plucked asunder by him, and fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. Now, if you just don't have a picture of this in your mind, it's one thing to keep pulling at a chain until the bolts come out of the ground. It's something else to pull so hard you snap chains in little bits and pieces. That's pretty incredible. In fact, the only kind of creatures on earth that do that usually aren't people. They are animals, yes, yes. Like, he's going down to a level that is very primitive. This guy is, is gone. Like, as far as common sense is there, it, he's gone. Now, this is the part that I thought was really fascinating, too. Verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, doing what? Crying and cutting himself. That is... Uh, a picture of despair that's hard to explain to people. There are people available for him to speak to, but probably no one's interested. In fact, it, I don't think it was just because he was demons-possessed that people were disinterested in him, because after he's healed, guess what the people do? They get rid of the guy that healed him. They don't even, they don't even say anything to the guy. The guy is back to normal and all this stuff, and they're still disinterested. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And I wish I could say that didn't happen in everyday life, but you know people, after they mark you off, they have a hard time letting you back in. Y'all have felt this experience before, yes? Focus for just a second on this idea that the man was cutting himself. Now, this is something that continues to go on, and self-harm continues to be something that, uh, that's on the rise. Uh, working in the community as a marriage and family therapist, I see lots of folks and uh, a lot of the young people that I see cutting and doing other kinds of things is, is, is not an unusual behavior. Now, the reason that people tend to do this more often than not, other than to fit in with their peers, which, believe me, that happens as well, and people are like, oh, yeah, I'm depressed, uh, you know, they kind of cut themselves, but you can tell the difference between somebody who's doing it because they feel like it's the only way to have an escape on someone who isn't. Nevertheless, oftentimes the reason for the physical cutting is because the person has gotten to a place where their psychological pain is unmanageable. And so they create a kind of pain that is manageable. You do realize that it's easier to heal a cut than it is to heal an emotional wound, don't you? I wanted to show you this before I say it. People actually experience what uh, simulates physical pain when facing rejection. Uh, and I want you to be thinking about the sufferings of Jesus. Here goes the scientific quote, and then I'll try to put this in plain English once more. It says, the subjects reported feeling excluded and ignored. Um, they did a game where the person was, uh, 
playing a virtual game and they assumed that there were other people playing in the game with them. So anybody that's played uh, some of these games like World of Warcraft, don't play them. Um, but nevertheless, in those kind of games, you know, if you're out there and you're playing them, you know that other players are actually responsible for what goes on with some of the other characters out there. And this one, they programmed, it wasn't actually real people, they programmed the computer to, to exclude the actual subject from the game. So it's kind of like they would never get the ball. And the people explained how they felt. And it says, the subject reported feeling excluded and ignored. Those aren't actually emotions, but nevertheless. It says, and their brain scans revealed significant activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, of course. And it says, in the same region that registers what? Physical pain. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. This means that when you experience things like rejection, and you say it hurts, that is not a metaphor. That is actually reality. It actually registers physical pain. So people who experience depression, that pain is real. In fact, if you can ask them to trade between their mental anguish and physical anguish, they will trade with you. And you know how I know that and how you know that is because many of them kill themselves. And you may not know this, but suicide hurts most of the time. Even when it's fast, people who have survived will let you know that it hurt. So what kind of pain must somebody be feeling emotionally to put themselves through that? Now notice this man is not cutting himself with knives. He says he's cutting himself with stones. It's like trying to cut yourself with a spoon. <laughs> well, with stones, I mean, it's such a crude way to hurt yourself. And I want to suggest to you that sometimes there's a pain that's worse than sadness. And it's the pain of not being able to feel anything. When you are cut off from experiencing some of the basic joys and happiness in life, even things like pain are welcome. Because at least I can feel something. And I want to submit to you that this man felt nothing, and it brought him to tears day and night. That sounds bleak. And it would be bleak if somebody were not there to help this man. So you're still there in Mark chapter 5. Go with me down to verses 8 and 9. Actually, no, jump down to verse 6. I think this will be a better transition. Verse 6. You're all there in Mark chapter 5 and verse 6. But when he saw Jesus afar off, it says he did what? He ran and worshipped him. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. We know this man is full of devils. We absolutely know this. When devils see Jesus, which way do you think they're inclined to run? Just your best educated guess. Yeah, you usually don't run towards someone that is there to, you know, essentially defeat you. It's like running towards a bear. Not a good idea. So then, it's probably not the demons who are running towards this man. Who is? Yeah. yeah, the man himself. I want you to think about something for a second. The determination which with this man must be running. When he was filled with devils, he's able to bust out chains and he's able to do all these incredible feats of strength. That probably means the demons aren't very weak. So with what kind of vigor was this man running to Jesus? Yeah, with everything he had. Because in that moment, nothing else mattered. It's like, this, it's like this thought that I'm going to die trying. And I want to submit to you, brothers and sisters, that coming to Jesus is not just this casual thing where we just simply say a 30-second prayer and just kind of just lay it all on the table. I think that's a good place to start. But I want to suggest to you that a whole-souled religion requires running to Jesus with everything you have. Verse 7, he cried with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Now listen, those words were probably not his. Those words came from devils. But you know, words come from your thoughts. And you can imagine who had control of his thoughts. But if the demons had control of his thoughts, 
and somehow he gained control of his legs, that means that he was still there somewhere. Brothers and sisters, you may have really messed yourselves up with decisions you've made in your own lives, but I want to suggest that any part of you that's willing to come to Jesus, you take that part of you and you run with everything you have until you get there. Jesus will be there to receive you. Jesus was not the least bit intimidated. Verse 8 says, For he said unto him, Come out, of, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would send him not away into the country. Now, I'll just save you the time. He sends him into the pigs. The pigs die. And that tells you something about uh, how the pigs probably felt when they were full of devils. Yeah, well, they all killed themselves. So... It's hard for me to explain the kind of pain people are in sometimes, but um, oftentimes it's said that people who commit suicide are being cowardly. And I think what people forget on the outside is that the only reason why they stayed alive as long as they have is because of the people they love. Don't miss that. The only reason why people hang on as long as they do is because of the people they love. And I imagine the only reason why this man was not dead yet is because a part of him still held out hope. Pigs killed themselves immediately. This man holds on to something. Is everybody still okay? I mean, we're still okay. Verse 17. Oh, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 15. So after this had happened, after the pigs were drowned, after the man was back to his normal self. I love the words that were put there. And it says, And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had a legion sitting, clothed, and in his what? His right mind. He gave this man the ability to feel again. When we are cut off from our emotions, we really do get cut off from one of the main things that makes us human. And this man comes back to a place where he can feel again. Not only that, he's sitting with Jesus, which means now he's allowed to connect with people again. With Jesus in his life, this man is able to have his right mind. He's able to feel again. He's able to connect again. And in fact, he becomes an amazing missionary for Christ. Brothers and sisters, we talked about giving your thoughts to God. I want to suggest also giving your feelings, your emotions to God as well. He can make you whole again. There was a man, uh, Martin Pistorius, and I talked about him a little bit last time, and I wish I could put up a picture of the man, but he was the one that I talked about last time that uh, got some crazy bacterial infection disease that essentially cut him off from uh, being able to speak with anybody. Now, you remember this whole brainstem thing, you know, like the bottom part, you have the two sides. One side is responsible for plugging uh, your brain into your body. The other one is responsible for taking the higher parts of your brain and plugging that into your body as well. They're, they're two different kinds of connections. If one of them's broken, then you end up being a vegetable. I mean, uh, as has been commonly coined, because the frontal lobes, all your higher level reasoning, it just disappears. If the other one is cut, you physically become a vegetable, but mentally you stay completely conscious and aware of everything going on around you. This was one of the most desperate cases I think I've ever saw before, and it's been hard for me to ever read this man's case without bursting into tears because this man spends 13 years being able to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and nothing else. He can still think. He was actually really intelligent. He wrote a book afterwards about his entire experience. And he talked about during this time where he could not do for himself. His parents took care of him as long as he could, as long as they could. But then he ended up in a hospital. And while he was in that hospital, he said that he learned what people are really like when they think no one's around. And he told some of the most, I mean, he summarized what were probably some of the most horrific experiences. He talked about how the nurses would physically abuse him how people would say all kinds of cruel things to him because they didn't think he understood what was going on. The man was abused not only physically, but as you can imagine, uh, 
there are lots of perverse things that go on with uh, our elderly and our disabled constantly. That abuse problem is real and it goes on all the time. And he was a victim of it. And all he can do was sit there and watch and feel the whole thing happen without being able to say a word. He eventually emerges from all these things because for a while he decided, well, maybe if I just ignore my thoughts and pretend like they're not there, maybe that'll help. Well, what ends up happening instead is he finally gets tired of disappearing into the background and pretending like everything is okay. And he starts challenging his thoughts. And he talked about one of the things that really woke him up one day was his hatred for Barney. He had to watch hours and hours and reruns of Barney all the time, and his happy, happy, joy, joy presentation in the midst of his, in the context of his pain drove him absolutely bananas. And he decided to start fighting back. He started to emerge and eventually got to the place where he can start moving his eyes and giving some sort of recognition to the outside world that he was in fact alive. It would still be another two or three years before people started assuming he had more than just the education of a two or three year old. And so he still had to fight to be himself. And one of his most profound statements was when he came out of it, he realized the power of communication, the power of words, and how much words can help people to understand who you are, not just by using them, but by using them honestly. Powerful testimony. I found out after the end of all that stuff that the man turned out to be a Christian, which was not mentioned on any of the things that I was able to find about him, except in the things he actually wrote himself. And he said that the only reason why he made it through that is because God was with him. And so I, he made a bunch of statements. I wish I could read all of them to you, but if you would like to, uh, to check it out, I'll just read this one statement. And what it said was, uh, he said, I was utterly alone until God came into my life. Waking up one night, I felt as if I were leaving my body, floating upwards, and somehow I knew that I was not breathing. But I also understood that I was not alone, that angels were comforting and guiding me. I wanted to leave my life and be with them, but he goes on to say that he knew his family needed him. And so out of love for his family, that man stayed alive and connected with people, and he's alive to tell a story. If you want to go find him, you can go find him. It was really powerful. So I'm going to skip through the rest of this and get to our last point for today. So I need you all to do something with me. You all have been sitting out there for roughly about uh, 35 minutes, and so I'd like for you to stand up for a second and take a real deep breath. If you need to, and if you don't, I suppose you can stay seated. And when you feel nice and comfortable and you've taken in all the oxygen that your brain needs to continue burning, then, uh, then you may have a seat, and we will try to finish this in the next 15 minutes, if, if not sooner. All right. All right. How's everyone doing? Everyone's still okay? You're still breathing? Still alive? Alive? Okay. All right. Perfect. Ah, man. So I don't know how we're going to um, do the second part, and I'm going to have to just cut a lot of stuff out of this, so uh, ask your forgiveness in advance. Turn within your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, that, you know, it sounds all well and good to commit to God on the level of thought, to let every thought be brought into obedience of Christ, to meditate in his word day and night sounds great. And also to get to the place where you're connected with people, where you love and you have your joys and pleasures and all this stuff back again. But some of you have gone to realize that even when you have your best intentions, that sometimes your best intentions aren't good enough to stop you from doing the things that you don't want to do. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a very brief look at uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then we're going to take a look, hopefully, at our Lord Jesus, because to me that's the most important part. And if anything happens, I would rather focus on that than to get too, too caught up in this. So is everybody there in Daniel chapter 4? Amen. So Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, or excuse me, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Yes. Okay. So Daniel chapter 4. And we're just going to target a few verses. So Daniel chapter 4, and you're still remembering that you have this brain that has branches and tree, uh, fruit, and then you have the stalk and the roots and all these other things. And I want you to notice what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the visions of my thoughts upon my bed and the visions, uh, excuse me, of my head troubled me. Therefore, I made a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Now, I'm going to go ahead and jump down, and I want you to look at verse 12. So it goes on to describe this tree, and it says, 
The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and it had meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt under the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. And I saw the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said, Hew down the tree, and cut off his branches, and shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit, and let the beast get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump, and what else? The roots in the earth. Even with the band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of, uh, with hev- of heaven, excuse me, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Now Daniel goes on to explain to him that this tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. Now you'll notice that something was going on with Nebuchadnezzar. He came to the place where he knew that God existed, because if you look in Daniel 2, he has this dream, and God says, I know your thoughts. And he's like, all right, that's fantastic. Then you go to Daniel 3, where he sees that people are willing to give their lives, that fear was not sufficient to keep them from going into, the li- uh, uh, to going into the fiery furnace. And so he sees that, wow, you know, there's a God who's strong enough to make sure that emotions do not override reason and people are actually willing to die for him. But then he gets down to this last level where he is challenged, I believe, on the level of his instincts, on his very nature as a person. He does not defy that God exists. What he defies is that God has been the source of his success. He believes that the source within himself is sufficient to explain his successes in life. And God does something to make sure that he never thinks that ever, ever again. So in this vision that he has, it says the the tree is cut down to where? To the stump with nothing left but the roots. And so if we're doing this, what part of the brain would that leave you with? The, The very base part right there, right? Everything else is cut off except for that base and maybe a little bit of stump. And do you know what begins to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? It says that he begins to eat grass. His nails grow long. His hair grows like eagle's feathers, becomes wet. And for seven years, people walk him around and let him eat grass like an animal. And I always thought that that was fascinating. Now, it says that he gave unto him the heart of an animal, but I want to suggest to you the way that you give somebody the heart of an animal is you cut them off from everything that makes them human. Now, I want you to look at his testimony when he comes out of this disaster. So you're still there in Daniel chapter 4? So turn with me to the very last two verses in Daniel chapter 4. Actually, we're going to look at the very last verse in verse 37. After his seven years where his reason returns to him, in fact, the way he refers to it is he says his glory returned to him, which I believe has much to do with that part of your brain that helps to keep you human. This is his testimony. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all, uh, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he's able to do what? He's able to abase. Now that's powerful because you'll find out in Peter what it says is that God gives grace unto the humble, but he resists the proud. But here it is that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, but even for the proud, God can abase him. And I want to suggest to you that sometimes the Lord has to cut us all the way down before we're willing to look up before we're willing to recognize that he is the source of our being. So how does all this play in with Jesus? We see that when Nebuchadnezzar is cut all the way down, he's compared literally to an animal. And I want to submit to you that Jesus experiences something on our behalf that to me makes so much more sense when we consider what happened here. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Is everybody there in Luke 22? All right. We're going to look at Luke 22, and we're going uh, to look at the verse, uh, verse 39. Luke 22:39. All right. And when he went out, uh, excuse me, and when he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him, 
And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And when he was withdrawn from them, a stone's cast, he knelt down and prayed. And said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared unto him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat were, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, brothers and sisters, the reason I read that to you is because... Uh, well, I choose this one because it really talks about the agony that Jesus experiences. But what it doesn't necessarily talk about is what the other Gospels allude to, and that is when Jesus walked out there, it says that he fell on his face. Now, Jesus was not falling on his face to be dramatic. There is something that can happen to you where, you know, we were using this whole hand illustration that causes you to disconnect on every level except here. And those kind of experiences are done when, when somebody experiences trauma. When trauma hits, everything turns off. So you've heard the response, fight or flight, before, right? Did you know there's actually four of them? You have fight, you have flight, you have freeze, which is the whole deer in the headlights business, and then you have collapse. Now the collapse one happens when the system is so overwhelmed that the person just cuts off from being fully alert, fully conscious. In fact, uh, many people who have experienced uh, certain forms of abuse sometimes blame themselves for not being able to fight back. But what's happening is if you reach a certain level of stress, the parts of your brain that help you to think and reason and control your body shut off. That might be helpful to somebody who's been through this before. It's not worth it to blame yourself. This is the way your mind works. Now, what's powerful here is that for Jesus, he is literally cut down as far as he can go. Nebuchadnezzar is compared to an ox. Do you know what Jesus is compared to when he's cut down as far as he can go? Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. at verse 6. Now, interestingly enough, you can see the two different responses. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and 7, and you can look at these two different responses. Verse 6, it says, All we like what, everyone? Sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I want you to notice something. Do you know that when this verse is particularly fulfilled is in the garden, when all these people come to arrest Jesus? And you can watch the sheep go astray. Let me ask you a question. Why do the sheep go astray? Yeah, the shepherd, it says, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And when the, sh when the shepherd is taken, the sheep run to save themselves. But I want you to notice something that when Jesus is smitten, he also behaves like a lamb. But I want you to see how he does it. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did what, brothers and sisters? He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Brothers and sisters, when he is brought as low as he can go, he does not do what his disciples do. He does not run. He submits. He does not behave like a sheep seeking to save his own life, but becomes as a lamb who is prepared to be slaughtered for his sheep. The reason why this struck me so much is because when you break somebody down to this level, you begin to see their true nature. And what's so amazing and compelling about Jesus is when Jesus is cut all the way down, you see nothing but love and goodness. When Jesus is made like a beast and treated like a beast, he does not act like one who is seeking to save himself. But he acts as one who is seeking to save others at the expense of himself. This is amazing because Jesus literally gets to the place where he can't speak. Are you aware that when you are under extreme stress, like with public speaking, no words come to mind? But unlike us, he doesn't run off stage. He stays right there and allows the people 
to do that which we're afraid of, and that is to crucify him. What are the words that come from Christ's mouth? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is so powerful because when God himself is cut down to his most basic features, all you see all the way down to the bottom is love and submission. We are told very distinctly that Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. Now that's a statement from Desire of Ages, but you can find it in Psalm 69. It says that my eyes fail looking for thee. The word fail there is for the eyes to become sore and tired. It's to, it's to be crying so much that you cannot see through your own tears. Jesus cannot see anymore. And even when he sees nothing, he loves everyone. On every level, God is good. There was no level to which he can be brought where you could no longer find any love for humanity. It was there all the way down to the bottom. So you'll recall a little bit of the summary that we started with. And I want to suggest to you that something powerful happens here. The deception started with lying to people and convincing them that they should eat poison, that they should eat from the, from the, free, uh, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil. Now notice that the fruit of the tree went to the root of her being. Brothers and sisters, do you know when the Bible says that Jesus was crucified, it doesn't always refer to it as a cross. You know what else it refers to as? A tree. You know what hangs from a tree? It's fruit. Did you ever notice that Jesus said that if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you? Are you aware that the fruit of the tree is the body of Jesus? That just as Satan had done this thing, I want to suggest to you so it can be with the word of God. It can change your thoughts if you meditate day and not night. It can change your feelings if you believe his word. It can convert your heart if you partake of his promise, which is the fruit of the tree, which is the Lord Jesus crucified on our behalf. So that if we partake of the fruit of the tree, it will change the root of our being. The promise that we have in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, is that it says, Wherefore, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might become partakers of the divine, not the divine emotions, not the divine thoughts, of the divine nature. Brothers and sisters, let us seek a thorough conversion. When Paul tells us, that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus, we shall be saved. He tells us that it is with the heart that one believes and confession is made to salvation. But I want you to notice that when he says a confession, this doesn't just mean a 30-second prayer where you say these words. What it means is that when you are cut down to the foundations of who you are, the fruit, the words that come from you, from your heart, are the words that testify on behalf of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This has never been meant to be some sort of shallow prayer. It was to say that you don't just believe with your thoughts or with your feelings. You believe with your whole nature, with your whole heart. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet and we'll sing our closing hymn for today. It's I Surrender All and it's number...